following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. For those of you guys who don't know who I am, I'm Pastor Chris. I'm actually the youth pastor here. Um, and today, um, we're going to be looking at a text from uh, the book of Psalms attributed to, the, um, to David. And um, for those of you guys who have been with us for the past month or so, Dr. Steve, our lead pastor, has been preaching a series um, called The Life of David After God's Heart. And in last week's message, he taught uh, from a portion of David's life in the book of 1 Samuel where he was on the run in the wilderness. And this is common theme throughout a lot of David's life. He's constantly running away from people, especially from King Saul. And um, it was primarily because King Saul felt like David was a threat to him and to his throne. And he rightly felt this way because David had already been anointed as king even while Saul was already on the throne, or still on the throne, right? So Samuel had gone, said, God has taken this kingdom away from you. He's going to give it to another man. And so he chose David as his successor. Psalm 17, which we're looking at today, is one of a handful of psalms that has been credited to to David and um, that may have probably been written, historians and Bible scholars believe, was probably written during this period of David's life when he was on the run, okay? And Dr. Steve alluded to this in the message last week, but the narrative in the book of 1 Samuel tells us basically like the story, what happened, the facts about what happened with King David, what actual actions he took. But the Psalms give us a different angle, a different perspective on the life of David because it shows us what's going on internally for David as all these things are happening to him and with him, right? And so today, as we look at Psalm 17, um, we're going to see this theme that has come out in a lot of these Psalms I was looking at that, that David wrote in this period of his life, which is that even while he was on the run, David had this ridiculous faith that God was going to be the one to deliver him. God was going to be the one that would vindicate him. God would be the one that would um, bring about his justice for the people that were chasing after David wrongly and would save David because he was an innocent. And as I was reading through those psalms, and I was studying this particular psalm in chapter 17, I realized that far too often when things are difficult or uncomfortable, I behave much more like King Saul than like David, right? I grasp for power and control and try to get things back to the way that I want them to be. And I rarely, if ever, am willing to wait for God to act. I want everything to be done on my timeline. I'm in a hurry to get out of this wilderness because it's uncomfortable for me. And one point that Dr. Steve has made over and over again throughout this series is that King David was decisively not a good king because he was a paragon of virtue, right? He was not more ethical than everybody else. He didn't sin less than the rest of us, and he didn't sin smaller than the rest of us. He was just a man like anybody else. But at the same time, there must have been something about King David that was commendable. In the book of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, Samuel told Saul that God had taken the kingdom away from him, and he says that God is going to give this kingdom to a man who is after God's own heart, right? And that man that he chose was David, and so now David has become known as this man who was after God's own heart. So what was it about him that was so commendable that made him earn that title? 
Well, during this period in the wilderness, the thing that puts me in shock and awe is how much restraint David is able to show when he's running for his life, hiding in a cave, and Saul is right there sitting in the cave, taking a deuce, and he has him, like, at his fingertips, right? So if you, for those of you guys who missed last week's sermon and don't know this story, David had been getting chased over, like, for, for a long time by, by King Saul and his men. David had a small camp of, of his own people, but Saul was chasing with hordes of men, right? And he wanted to kill David because he was like, this guy is about to take over my throne. And so Saul finally catches up to him, and he doesn't even realize that he's sitting right on top of him, and Saul has to go to the bathroom. So he goes and finds this cave, and it happens to be the same cave that David and his men are hiding in. And David has the opportunity to kill him, but instead, he decides to let him go. And when I look at that story, the fact that David chooses to spare Saul's life, I don't know, maybe some of you guys are better than I am, but for me, even on my best day, like, I would not have done that, right? It doesn't matter how many quiet times I'd have had that morning, how long I'd been praying, how good my, my heart was in that moment. I would not have been able to show that kind of restraint. And so today, as we look at the psalm, I want to see if we can come to understand what it was about David that enabled him and empowered him to show that kind of restraint, and not only restraint, but to show that sort of faith in God in that situation. And while probably none of us, I think Dr. Steve also alluded to this last week, but probably none of us are ever going to be in this particular situation that David was in where We're running for our lives, and somebody's chasing after us with an army of men, and we're going to hide in a cave. But I do hope that we can see today how ridiculously often we find ourselves in a situation that is very similar to David's. And then the hope is that all of us will also be able to relate to this and be convicted of our wrong attitudes and beliefs so that we then desire to increase our faith and to redirect our hope away from ourselves and taking justice into our own hands and to trust in God's justice. So let's get started. Psalm 17. If you have your Bibles, or if it'll, it'll show up on the screen for you guys, those of you guys who want to follow along there. It says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violence. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear as a young lion lurking in an ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Would you pray with me before we jump into this text? 
God, we pray for, um, for this to be your word that speaks to our hearts and for you to show us through the life of David um, the ways that we fail to trust in you, that we start to believe the lie that we are a more faithful and fairer judge than you are. And so God, would you um, help us to learn to trust in your justice and to entrust ourselves, our loved ones, and also our enemies to you. God, would you give us hearts that are ready to listen actively as you speak your word today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look at the first couple of verses in this psalm, David opens by making plain his request to God. He says, God, basically hear my prayer. What is his prayer? He says, let my vindication come from your presence and may your eyes see what is right. This is his thesis, if you will, of this entire psalm. And it's an interesting one because he says, these enemies of mine are after my life, but when you are here in your presence, I will be found innocent. When you judge rightly, you will judge in my favor. And that's at the crux of today's message, that David comes to God and trusts this whole situation to God's judgment. With his enemies before him, he allows God to actually be the judge and to have the final say. And I want to argue that this is precisely what is being addressed in our hearts in this psalm and in this period in the wilderness that David experiences, is that we, unlike David, are often unwilling to trust God's justice, especially when it comes to our enemies. When we've been wronged or hurt or put at a disadvantage because somebody else did something wrong, we trust our own judgment and our own sense of justice much more than we trust God's. My two-and-a-half-year-old son, uh, Grayson, is a pretty stereotypical boy. Um, He loves all sorts of different vehicles, cars, trucks, minivans, excavators, garbage trucks, mail trucks, brown trucks, UPS, ambulances, pet planes, helicopters, buses. It doesn't matter. He loves it. So when we're going on a car ride, it's like the most exciting time of the day. He'll point out everything that he sees, right? He also loves all sorts of sports. And if I were to guess what he's going to become based on what he loves right now, I'd say he's either going to be a professional athlete or a garbage truck driver, okay? (laughs) Those are the things that he loves. And because he loves those vehicles so much, One of the most exciting things for him is to see those uh, emergency vehicles driving by when the lights are flashing and the sirens are going, right? So those of you guys who have kids probably know exactly what I'm talking about, that when they see those lights flashing, they're like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Look, 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 right? And so when he sees it going by, he always goes, dad, pull the car, pull the car, mom, pull the car. He like makes sure that we're actually going to look, okay, yes, there's a police car. We see it. And he says pull the car like that because even though he was born here, his grandmother's raising him, right? <laughs> and so one day after we saw this police car drive by, he got really excited. He goes, wee-oo, wee-oo, right? Like that's the noise that it makes. And so he'll, he looks at us and he, he got so excited. And Connie turns to me in the car and she says, can you imagine how excited he's going to be if you ever get pulled over while he's in the car with you? <laughs> and I said, oh my goodness, you're so right. He absolutely would be thrilled, but I would not, right? For those of you guys who drive, you know that gut-wrenching feeling of seeing those lights flashing behind you, right? 
And you may have like passed by the cop and you saw him right at the last second. You're going a little bit too fast. You slow down, you put, hit the brake, slow down right away. But when you see him pull, over, pull, pull, pull up behind you, you're just hoping like, please don't turn on the lights, please don't turn on the lights. And then all of a sudden they come on, you're like, ah, shit. And there's this dread over having the police officer there. The presence of that law enforcement officer can bring this great sense of, of guilt and wrongdoing. And it's not even just the speeding or running through a red light or not stopping fully at a stop sign, but like everything you've ever done wrong, like flashes through your mind, right? Like what is he catching me for this time? And it's not a fun experience. But there is another kind of a circumstance where having that, that police car there and seeing those lights would be a most welcome sight, right? So hopefully none of you guys have ever experienced anything like this, but imagine that you're walking through, you know, some, some street and, and there's some guys that are up to no good, started making trouble in your neighborhood. You're confronted by these thugs who are about to rob you, and they come up and they try to, try to take your money, and they may hold you at gunpoint or something. And if you're in that sort of a situation where you're getting attacked, then if you see a police car come up, that would be like a savior that arrives, right? It wouldn't be this dread over like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I got caught again, but more like, oh my goodness, thank goodness that you are here because you're able to deliver me. Now, I'm going to take you back one more time, and the, the, re- the only reason why that may not cross your mind, and the way, why you may not feel that way, is let's say that you're in that same situation, and this guy's attacking you, but you happen to be this ex-Navy SEAL, okay? And as an ex-Navy SEAL, you say, man, this guy, I don't know how many guys this thug has attacked before, but he messed with the wrong person today, right? And so you're thinking in your mind, like, wow, this guy's got something coming. He doesn't even know. And you're about to to whip it out, but then the police officer comes. And then, in that instance, you're like, man, I wish he wasn't here because then I could have done, done something better than what he's going to do because even if he, this guy goes to jail, he's not going to get the sort of justice that he deserves that I could have doled out. The same thing could happen on a playground where, yeah, maybe there's this bully that's been picking on you for years and years and years, and then finally you tell your mom that, man, mom, I'm sick of getting picked on. Get me some martial arts lessons. Take me to Taekwondo. Teach me karate, right? And you go to lessons. And you're, you're training. Nobody knows. You're doing it in secret. And you finally train for three, four years, and then you're ready to take this bully on. And so in that moment, the next time that that bully picks on you, you, you wish that a teacher wouldn't be there, right? So that you could do what you know is right, what this guy deserves. And that's actually our heart a lot of times when we experience wrongs is that we wish that there wouldn't be a fair judge, a good authority around, so that we can give them a piece of our mind. We can give them the sort of justice that we think that they deserve. But in this psalm, in verses 3 to 5, we see David's pure heart as he comes to God and makes this request that God would be the judge in this situation. We often feel this way, and we don't want to allow God to be the judge because we believe the lie that the other person's wrong, their offense, is worse than our wrong. So really, when we're seeking justice, when we are asking God to act justly, we're really wanting justice for them, but not for us. And it becomes really convenient for us to not allow God to be the judge, but for us to be the judge, because then we can make the rules. We can say that what they've done is wrong and unacceptable, but the things that we do are just gray areas, or they're just not that big of a deal. 
For example, I think most of us, if not all of us, would agree that stealing is wrong. It's bad, right? But we might disagree about what kinds of stealing are wrong or bad. When I was in college, I had this conversation with one of my roommates, and I don't remember how this came up, but somehow we started talking about stealing and whether or not it was wrong, and and he said basically that his philosophy of stealing was that if you're stealing from a big corporation or if it's somebody who has like so much that they wouldn't miss it, that it doesn't matter, right? And I was like, I don't know if that's true, right? He's like, well, I would never steal from like an actual person, right? Like I wouldn't steal from like our roommate or our, our hallmates, right? Or somebody that I know, or even just, even if I didn't know them, if they were just an average person, I wouldn't steal from them. But if I were to come across like Warren Buffett and he happened to drop his wallet, I wouldn't feel bad about picking it up and taking it. And the same applies, like, if I go to Best Buy, I wouldn't steal something huge, like, the value of the thing matters, right? So I don't like, make up some plan to steal a big, big screen TV, but if I didn't have the money, and as a cor- poor college student, a lot of times we didn't have money, if I wanted to take this mouse that's, like, 30, 40 bucks, they wouldn't miss it that much. And in his mind, he justified it saying, like, man, you know what? Like, they probably expect people to steal some things. They expect those losses, and they build it into the prices. So it's, like, no big deal, right? I'm just making it fair. Now, I don't know if y'all would agree outright with this roommate, but I do think that all of us have some sort of that reasoning at play in our minds. For example, we might report less on our taxes than what we actually earn because the dumb government is not going to use the money in the right way anyway. So, you know, by, by keeping it for myself or putting it to better uses, I'm actually like a modern-day Robin Hood, and I'm <laughs> taking from the rich and giving to the poor, Right? They don't deserve that money anyway. But for those of you guys who don't pay taxes yet or don't pay a lot in taxes yet, maybe it's pirating movies and music and software. (laughs) Yeah, it hurts, right? (laughs) Let the conviction settle. It's okay. And in our minds, we keep thinking like, man, those companies make so much money anyway. They have so much stuff. And I have so little. I'm just this poor little student. And so it doesn't really matter. Are they really going to miss a couple of extra bucks? Well, I know that a lot of times it's easy for us to become this ultimate judge over these issues. We might look at it and say like, well, that is wrong, but this is okay. But when God says in his word um, what is right and wrong, when he's able to look at these situations and tell us that these are the things that I want you to do, and these are the things that are right, and these are the ways that are wrong, if we're picking and choosing what we want to believe and what we don't want to believe, then we are ultimately making ourselves the ultimate arbiters of that justice. But unlike our natural tendencies to believe that other people's wrongs are really wrong, but my wrongs are not that bad, David trusted God's justice, not only for his enemies, but for himself first. Verses 3 to 5, he says, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your past. My feet have not slipped. And David is not saying that he's perfect and blameless and sinless. There are multiple other passages where he readily admits his own sinfulness. 
But David has in view in this chapter a particular kind of sin that he feels like his enemies that he's addressing right now are guilty of. And he's saying, man, God, I want your justice here. And as I'm thinking about this and as I'm calling on your name to enact your justice, I'm doing my best, my part to make sure that I am standing right before you and I'm not going to fall into that same sort of sin. So what was that sin that he's trying to address in his enemies? In verse 4, he says, As for the deeds of men, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. He's saying, look, these enemies of mine that are chasing after me, that are coming after my life, they are behaving violently. They want to shed blood. And I could repay them in kind, but I know, God, that their violence doesn't excuse my own. And so I will not use their sin as an excuse for mine. I'm trying to maintain peace here, and I'm trying not to fight back, even though they're chasing me and attacking me. But I need you then to step in. In verses 10 through 12, he expands on his description of these, these evil men, these, these enemies of his. He says, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a, a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. They're merciless. They're proud. They have their hearts and their minds set on killing us. They're like beasts waiting for prey, ready to pounce at any moment. They're eager. They're longing, wanting, desiring to tear and destroy. They're bloodthirsty. But I, God, I am doing whatever I can to avoid the ways of the violent. In our society today, we may not come across this sort of a physical threat very often, but we do often experience this same sort of a scenario where we're caught between a rock and a hard place where people are doing us wrong, and we feel like the only proper response is for us to return the same favor, to respond in kind to do exactly what they're doing. And it may not be like exacting revenge on them, but it may be something as, as, as simple as um, society telling all of our young people today that in order for you to be a success, in order for your life to amount to anything, you need to get into a competitive college. You need to go to one of these elite schools. You need to get the good grades and get that degree from that institution that has that name and that reputation. And so during junior high and high school, nobody really has time for church or for reading the Bible or for serving other people because I'm too busy trying to make sure that my life is going to get set straight. And it seems like the responsible thing to do because if you want to get into the one, one of these competitive schools, then you need to like start resume padding at like age four, right? Like if you're starting soccer at, at seven years old, you're too late. You're not going to make it. JV for the rest of your life. And so Connie and I are planning to take Grayson and all of his friends on a service trip for his third birthday next year because we want to get ahead of the curve. <laughs> but it's crazy, right? Like the things that people need to do these days to make sure that they are going to be on par with what everyone else is doing. And because society is telling us these things, and because these elite higher education institutions and, and all of society as a whole is, is valuing religion less than they used to, then for you to be serving in a position in your church, and your youth group, doesn't really seem like it's going to impress anybody. And so we spend all of our time and our energy trying to make ourselves worth something in the eyes of this world. You feel like if you're going to be somebody in this world, 
They need to play the same game that everyone else is playing. And then we justify it in our own minds saying, well, God will understand because if I don't do all these things right now, then my life will end up in shambles. We feel like either we do these wrong things that we see everybody else doing, we chase after the same things that they're chasing after, or we're going to die, just like David felt, right? Either I'm going to be violent, just like Saul's being violent, I'll kill him before he kills me, or I'm going to die. And the scary thing is that it's not even just our students that are believing this, but full-grown adults, we're all smart people. Y'all know what's going on in this world. But even as Christian adults, we fall into those same temptations. The things that you want for your kids, the fears that we have over what's going to happen in their futures drive us to live in so many ways just like the rest of the world lives. How do we really balance faith with all the demands that society puts on our students? Won't God understand if just during this few years they pursue this or that sport or hobby or club just until they get into that college so that they can have everything set up for success and then we'll start to worry about faith. But when we find ourselves scrambling in the same rat race as everyone else, how can we as a church be the prophetic voice that they need to hear that says that there is more to this life than getting into a good school, getting that good job, and making a good name for ourselves? And so in the fir- as he opens up this psalm, as, as soon as he makes this request of God saying, God, bring your justice, the next step for David is saying, God, check my heart first. Look, they are violent, they're merciless, they're proud, they're eager to tear down, to ambush, to destroy, but I am going to be loving and merciful and humble and eager to build up and to protect and to save. And I don't know how this is going to work out for me, but God, I'm trusting it into your hands. You be the one that vindicates me. You be the ultimate judge over what happens to both parties here. But David realized that he can't ask God to be the judge over their sin if he's not willing to submit to that judgment himself. Kevin DeYoung, pastor, professor, theologian, wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition back in 2011 called What Made David Great? And in this article, he says, So with all these flaws, what made David great? One could easily mention David's courage, his loyalty, his faith, his success as a leader, musician, and warrior. But he was great in other lesser-known ways as well. In particular, David was a great man because he was willing to overlook other sin, but unwilling to overlook his own. And I think it's because he realizes this that David is able to exercise such ridiculous restraint when he comes across Saul in that cave in En Maybe he had written this psalm before he came across Saul there. Or maybe out of his, like, meditations as he's trying to make this decision in that cave, he wrote this psalm. I don't know, but, but he realizes that when I'm asking God to deliver me from these violent hands— I need to make sure that my own hands are clean. I need to be willing to submit not just my enemy, but myself to your justice. And God had promised David the throne. He had made this promise to David. And so David trusted that God would deliver, that God would bring about his own justice for Saul and that David didn't need to move his hand to do it himself. And we may all know that this is true and agree to it in theory, but in practice... We all know that it's so much more difficult, right? 
Usually knowledge is not the issue for us in our moral failures. It's not because we didn't know that it was wrong, but it just, we just weren't able to act on what we knew. And the same was true of David. It's easy to miss this, but David gives us hints in this psalm as to how he was able to maintain his righteousness in the situation. Back in verse 4, he says, As for the deeds of men, or another translation puts it, Although these men try to bribe me and convince me to do otherwise, by the words of your lips... I have avoided the ways of the violent. And again, verse 5, he says, My steps have, felt path, ha- have held fast to your paths. He's basically saying, God, this is what you taught me. It's because of your words and also because of the path that you yourself have already walked that I am able to say, I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be merciful and humble and eager to build up and to protect and to save. He's only able to do it because he can, that, he, he can draw that power from looking at God and saying, God, I'm going to do these things because you were first loving and merciful and humble, eager to build up and to protect and to save. And that's why you've called me to do it as well. And this brings us to the second reason why it's so hard for us to trust God's justice for our enemies. And I promise that first one, for those of you guys who are afraid, that was the longest one. <laughs> The second reason why it's so hard for us to trust God's justice for our enemies is because we believe the lie that God is not quite good enough. This is Satan's MO, right? From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, right? The first moment that he tempted Adam and Eve, the way that he did it was by getting them to question God's character, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness, his holiness, his power, Satan whispers in their ear, did God really say? And then he tells them it's because he knows that when you eat of that tree, then you'll become like him. And he doesn't want you to become like him. He wants you to stay down here for him to stay up here. He gets them to question God's character and his love for them. And when we start to believe that he doesn't really love us that much, or he doesn't always have our good in mind, or he's not always going to punish evil, then we can't trust him to exercise justice. He might convict an innocent person, or he might fail to convict a guilty one. Think about the things that make you angry. Maybe somebody cutting you off on the road, or the thing that's worse for me is like when I stop at a stop sign, and then I'm fully stopped, and the person that's driving across sees that I'm stopped and just drives straight through. And I'm like, I missed my turn because you broke the law, right? And I want to chase after them and be like, you should have stopped back there. <laughs> or somebody cheating in the game to beat you. And the worst thing is not just them cheating in the game, but when they don't even realize that they cheated. Or they know it, and they act like they didn't. They're like, oh, that was a good game, like trying to be a gracious winner when they cheated to beat you, right? There's something in us when we see something like that going on, some sort of injustice that just makes us want to scream, right? It makes us want to do something to make sure that they, the perpetrator, and everyone else in the room knows that they did something wrong, right? That's why it's so frustrating. I think that's why so many people have road rage. It's because you can't do anything about it. You're stuck in your car, they're in their car, they get away with it every time. And there's In our hearts, we just want to scream at the world, man, this just isn't right. And we don't actually care to make it right, but we just want to make sure that they know that it's wrong. 
Disney Pixar's movie um, Inside Out, Joy introduces this character, Anger, saying, that's Anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair, (laughs) right? This got me thinking, man, that's so true. I do get angry when I feel like there's some sort of injustice. That is a lot of times what drives my anger. And we do care very, very deeply about things being fair, especially if we feel like our enemies enemies are getting away with something. And in my anger, let me tell you that my first reaction is usually not to go and pray about it and put it in God's hands, saying like, God, I'm angry, but, you know, you can deal with this bad person yourself, and I don't have to have anything to do with it. I don't have to even see what goes on. I don't have to know how you're going to deal with it, but I trust that you're going to execute your own justice, and it's fine. It's not my heart. My reaction is usually, all right, everybody step aside. I've got this. The kid gloves are coming off because if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself, right? And I will show them exactly how much I care about getting this right. I don't trust God to do what I feel like needs to be done. We're angry because we feel like we need to be the ones that do something about this injustice. We don't believe that God will. We don't believe that God cares enough. But David trusted God. In verses 6 through 9, we see him calling on God and saying, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. When faced with this injustice, rather than taking matters into his own hands, David relinquishes control to God and says, God, you be the one to take care of this. He does this because he knows that God will answer. He says it right at the beginning there. He says, God, I'm calling on you because I know that you will answer me. So incline your ear toward me. How does he know that? Because God had been faithful to him and had answered him before. When David had, was, was uh, slayed Goliath, why was David willing to step up and fight Goliath when all the Israelite soldiers didn't? It was because when David was watching the sheep, God had delivered him from the hand of the, the bear and the lion. He said, God, you came through for me against those beasts, and this is a beast just like that. And so, no, God, I know that you're going to deliver me here too. And so in the same way, when he comes across this situation where his enemies are, are surrounding him, they're trying to kill him, he's saying, God, I'm going to trust in your justice, and I know that when I call on you, you will answer me because you've been faithful to do it before. And then in verse 7, he says, Wondrously show your steadfast love. There is that Hebrew word that Dr. Steve mentioned a couple of weeks ago in his message. The word hesed, right? Covenant, faithfulness, steadfast love. He's calling on the character of the God that he knows. He's saying, God, I know you are a God who shows steadfast love, so show it to me again. In the following line, he says, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at, at your right hand. He's saying, you are the Savior who saves those who seek refuge in you. So come through again. Do as you always do, God. Again, in verse 8, it's not make me the apple of your eye, but keep me. I've been the apple of your eye. You've shown me what it's like to be the apple of your eye. So keep me there. Keep me near. Keep that love coming. 
Rescue me from my enemies who surround me. I know what sort of a God you are. You take care of your own, and so I trust you. I trust your goodness. David trusted in God's goodness and his love. And in this psalm, I can almost hear David preaching at his own heart, right? If he was in this situation, like we said, David is not this like morally, spiritually perfect man. So I know that there must have been some rusting in his heart to say, God, man, it doesn't look, my circumstances are telling me that man is not the time to trust in your God because I haven't done anything wrong, but these guys have been chasing me and I can't get away. Everyone else has turned their back on me. I can't find a place that is safe in Israel with the Philistines. I can't find anywhere for me to lay my head. I don't have any bread to eat. I'm hiding in this cave. But God, David keeps on telling himself, no, I know who my God is. God, you hear me. You answer my prayers. You are loving. You're faithful. You're good. You are a stronghold for those who seek refuge in you. So I am not going to let that go. Remember how last week Dr. Steve preached about how David was on the run, going from place to place. He couldn't find any safe place for himself. He's constantly looking for some sort of a stronghold. But here he says, look, there is nowhere in this world where I can find rest. But you, God, under your wing, I want to hide. That's going to be my safe place. You are my hiding place. You are my stronghold. You are the one that has to rescue me because I can't do it and nobody else in this world can do it. And so, God, I trust in you and in you alone. We often believe this lie that God is not quite good enough, but David knew the goodness of his God. He trusted that God just, God's justice would be good. And it's necessary for us to come to this place where we can fully trust in God's goodness because even when God exercises his justice, it doesn't always look like our justice. Even when God hears our prayers and acts on our behalf, Sometimes it looks like our enemies come out on top. In verses 13 to 15, David is basically making his concluding remarks of this psalm, and something really interesting happens here. We're going to read just verses 13 and 14 for now. It says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord. And then there's this little aside. It's almost like, from men by your hand, O Lord. And he's like thinking about his enemies. He says, from these men of the world whose portion is in this life. Man, God, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. Think about this description of David's enemies. His enemies look like they win. David's saying, God, rise up, deliver me, bring my enemies low and rescue me from these men. But man, these guys look like they're winning everything. They're getting all the good stuff. They get to live evilly. They get to do whatever they want, be violent, kill whoever they feel like killing, and still their bellies are full, their wombs are full, they have children, they're satisfied with their children, and then they have an abundance to leave as an inheritance for their kids. Nothing seems to be going wrong in their lives. They're not paying for any of the, the bad things that they've done. Why do they get to do evil and have the good life? And this is actually not a rare occurrence in Scripture. 
it is actually very, very often that these evil people, these bad guys in, the, in, in these stories, are depicted as people who don't have to pay, at least immediately. They somehow get to eat their cake and have it too. And we've all met people like this before in real life. People who are just nasty people but somehow have made it to the top, right? People who are power hungry and greedy and step all over others but still seem to find success in their endeavors. And we're looking at them like, God, where is the justice here? How is this fair? I think a lot of times... The reason why this is so upsetting is because we actually want what they have. Either we think that they have better things than we do, or they have more things that we do, or even if they have just the same things that we have, they get it so much easier because they don't have to do it the right way. They get to cheat and lie and steal. So the third reason why we're unwilling a lot of times to trust in God's justice for our enemies is because we believe the lie that their goods are better than our goods. But look at how David turns this psalm around in verse 15. He says in verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David's providing a stark contrast between him and his enemies. My enemies, they are evil men. They, their portion is in this life. They have their fill here, their inheritance that they leave to their children. Is just the things of this world, but for me, my portion is to behold your face in righteousness. That when I awake, I will be made like you. I'll be satisfied with your likeness. They get their riches, their power, their fame, their glory here, but I get you, God. I get to behold your face, I get to dwell in your presence, and not only that, but I will become as you are, and that would be my satisfaction. And David finds that by showing mercy to Saul, he becomes a little bit more like God. He takes after the heart of God just a little bit more. It's because he's willing to submit himself and his enemies to God's justice that he becomes one who is fit to rule God's people. What made David a good king? Why was he the man after God's heart that was fit to rule this kingdom? It's because God was not looking for a replacement, but for a representative. He's not saying, I want you to be, be king because you get to rule more justly. You know what is more just than, than what I know. But he's saying, I want somebody who will submit to my authority, who will recognize that my justice is good and right, and who will live accordingly. So by the end of the psalm, David finds that he's no longer even so deeply concerned about what sort of justice his enemies come across. It's not about what happens to them. He doesn't say, okay, God, for me, I'm going to get to behold your righteousness, and when I wake, I'll be satisfied with your likeness, but please make sure that they get punished too. <laughs> he says, my primary concern has now shifted from, from making sure that these guys face their justice and face their judgment and get their due punishment to realizing that, man, my satisfaction, my joy, my completeness comes in you and in you alone, from your presence, from being with you, from being made like you. 
The Apostle Paul discovers the same truth in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It doesn't matter what my circumstances look like, but my satisfaction, my delight comes from you. The secret to trusting others into God's hands and being able to show mercy and to love God's justice is to learn to truly be content with God as your portion. C.S. Lewis writes about what it means to love your neighbor. And this can be extended to loving your enemy, as Jesus calls us to do. He writes this, he says, You are told to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love yourself? When I look into my own mind, I find that I do not love myself by thinking myself a dear old chap. He was British. Or having affectionate feelings. (laughs) I do not think that I love myself because I am particularly good, but just because I am myself and quite apart from my character. I might detest something which I have done. Nevertheless, I do not cease to love myself. In other words, that definite distinction that Christians make between hating sin and loving the sinner is one that you've been making in your own case since you were born. You dislike what you have done, but you don't cease to love yourself. You may even think that you ought to be hanged. You may even think that you ought to go to the police and own up and be hanged. Love is not affectionate feeling but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. In the final verse in the psalm, where David proclaims that God is his portion and his source of satisfaction, that last verse is wrought with resurrection language. When C.S. Lewis was writing about what it means to love our neighbors, I think um, David found that, okay, I, if I am the recipient of God's love, if, if I'm at asking God to be just, then I know that I'm just an object of grace, an object of wrath that was turned into an object of grace just like these other guys are. And so I need to show that love to them. And the resurrection language that we see in this last verse is, I don't think that David was writing it thinking like, like being prophetic and God told him like, oh, there's going to be a, a savior that comes. He's going to be raised from the dead. And, and I needed to write this about, write about the resurrection in this psalm. But I think David was just writing what he thought about how things were going. And it, it was God orchestrating the big picture of, man, when we see this side of the New Testament, this side of Jesus, what this all means, that it will make so much more sense and mean so much more for us. But look at what he says. It says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be made righteous and I'll be with you. And when I awake, when I'm raised again with Christ, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I'll be made fully like Christ. In the end, David trusts God's justice for his enemies, whatever form that may take, because he knows that in his end, he will behold the face of God. When he awakes, he'll be found like him. Jesus came and not only trusted God's justice for his enemies, but took on God's just wrath. On our behalf, we who were his enemies, so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. And so that one day we could see him face to face. So that one day we will be raised with Christ and will wake 
and be satisfied with his likeness in us. And this gospel hope is the greatest reason that we have for entrusting ourselves and our enemies to the justice of our good God. Let's pray.